Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It is Thursday, December 9th, 2010. We'll be doing a light program today, continuing with our lecture series on the two natures in Christ. Tomorrow will be a normal program. Details in a minute. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of uh, crazy things being said about God, and we like to challenge those things and also engage in some teaching along the way. Now, today we're going to do a light version of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, I normally call it Friday Light, but it's Thursday, and uh, I I would ask at the uh, here at the outset of the program, continue to keep my landlady in your uh, in your prayers. Um, had a little opportunity to spend some time with her today, and um, boy, I you know she is truly hurting. And, uh, you know, her husband was tragically killed in a car accident. And, um, you know, her life is just really, 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 truly complicated. And uh, you know that somebody's really soul-searching when they look you straight in the eye and they say, why did God allow my husband to be killed? And it is just heartbreaking. And the only answer I can give her is, I don't know. I don't know, but let me tell you about Christ. And so um, keep her in your prayers. Uh, I, again, I'm not comfortable giving her name out over the air, uh, you know, but uh, her nickname is D. So if you pray for D, um, you know, God will know who you're referring to. And, uh, you know, she's uh, she's my age and she's now a widow and um, she's got small kids and and an older uh, um, stepchild, and uh, the whole thing is really complicated and very, very sad and very tragic. Okay, moving along. Um, Today we're going to continue with part four of our lecture series on the two natures in Christ. And in this segment of the the lecture series, and keep in mind this is college-level stuff, and um, today's... uh, uh, today's episode, today's installment, is probably more complicated and convoluted than any of the any previous and any pro, uh, past. Uh, well, what will be future editions of uh, this lecture series? And uh, the reason why is because it deals with some of the philosophical concepts and definitions uh, that Martin Chemnitz gives in the opening to his book, in the opening chapter to his book. And uh, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt is not the one going to be lecturing today. It's going to be uh, uh, Dr. Dale Brandt, who is uh, who, who has his uh, f- uh, philosophy degree from the University of California, Irvine. And, uh, and as he, what he's going to do <clears throat> is take apart and help you get at least get a grasp, a mental grasp on some of these philosophical categories and the definitions that are laid out in chapter one of the book, which is going to have, it's going to force him to uh, deal with some Aristotelian philosophy 
And if you're rusty on Aristotelian philosophy or have never really uh, had anyone explain some of the major concepts of Aristotelian philosophy to you, uh, then, uh, then depending, this will either be a refresher course or it will absolutely tweak your brain. Uh, either ca- in either way, your brain still might hurt at the end of it, but keep this in mind. Uh, Dr. Brandt makes it very clear up at the beginning of the lecture that, uh, that he's dealing with this as philosophy and, uh, and that he thinks that there's some major uh, problems with this philosophy and uh and yeah especially from a biblical point of view so this is more or less a, an FYI type of lecture just so that you can understand when we're talking about uh essence and existence and communication of an attribute or an accidental attribute or things of that nature that in, in the next in the later parts of this book that at least you can have a rough cut idea of what those categories are that uh, Chemnitz is operating in. And so uh, this is going to be a key lecture. I apologize for its complexities, but I don't worry because I know uh, you, the Fighting for the Faith listener, are more than smart enough and adequate enough mentally to rise to the challenge and uh, digest this very convoluted uh, set of Aristotelian ph- philosophical propositions. <laughs> You're thinking, Roseboro, are you really having Aristotelian philosophy taught on your program? Yeah, <laughs> I am, uh, with the caveat that uh, where uh, Aristotle's philosophy flies in the face of the Word of God, Aristotle must give way to Christ. And I think uh, Dale Brandt, who is uh, uh, a man whom I am very well acquainted with, and uh, we used to be uh, members at the same church together, I think he would. Uh, he says the same thing in his lecture. All right. So, without any further ado, here is Dr. Rod Rosenblatt introducing uh, Dale Brandt, who will be lecturing on uh, the definitions from the two natures in Christ. I've asked Dr. Dale Brandt uh, to go over with us that uh, material that's in the first chapter of Chemnitz that has to do with definitions. Now, there's a method to this madness. I have one foot in the field of philosophy. Dale has both feet there. Did a very, very powerful degree at UC Irvine uh, under Pike. And Pike was an atheist, but he was a fair atheist. And ran a really good department. So a UCI degree in philosophy, of course analytic, Wittgensteinian, is a really powerful degree. So I asked for help from Dale because he can do this four times better than I can. Dale? Thanks, Rod. Uh, Very kind words, even if untrue. Um, uh, I want to start by, um, not with the uh, handout that uh, was available as you you came in, but with just a few uh, uh, introductory words. Chemnitz in the first uh, chapter of uh, uh, the two natures in Christ are, um, is explicating a set, a set of concepts that he didn't invent that had been in, uh, available throughout the Middle Ages since the mid-700s. Um, it's a school of thought called scholasticism, right? These, these ideas came from a, from a school of thought called scholasticism. Uh, scholasticism is the result of merging Aristotle with Christianity. Before scholasticism, you had the influence of Plato uh, being more important, and that was called the academic period. Uh, Chemnitz quotes uh, the scholastic, in fact, he's considered to have written the first work of scholasticism, and that's John of Damascus, uh, on all these uh, uh, topics. I'm not going to try and cover every topic that Chemnitz covers in chapter one, uh, in detail. Instead, I'm going to hit what I take to be the high points, which are essence, existence, uh, substance, and persons. Okay, These are the ideas, I think, that are important uh, when it comes to the issue of uh, the hypostatic union, um, So, uh, I th- which, by the way, is one of the terms that I'll try to define, because hypo- a person is a type of hypostasis. So, uh, maybe you'll get, have some idea of what a hypostatic union is uh, by the time I've done, I'm done. Uh, maybe not. Uh, the other thing I want to do is uh, sort of uh, put forward a warning about these subjects. Uh, this is philosophy. 
that was developed based on Aristotle hundreds of years ago, and it has, in my opinion, serious flaws. Serious flaws. Uh, I think if Chemnitz had written today, he probably would have written in different terms. Okay? Uh, I think there are some, some pretty strong criticisms against scholastic ideas. This is not to say we can't understand Chemnitz's ideas today and, and, and uh, make sense of them uh, because his philosophy is flawed and so, or anything like that. But I, I think you want to be very careful to distinguish the philosophy from what is actually taught in the Bible. Right? This is something that we talk about, this, uh, the, these philosophical concepts are something we talk about in order to satisfy our reason, right? Our reason says, how, how is it possible that, that God is man, right? That, that, there, that there's two natures. There's a human nature and a divine nature in Christ. How can that be possible? My reason tells me it's impossible. So what Chemnitz uh, is doing in part is uh, bringing in the tools of philosophy to show, no, it's not impossible, and once you get to that point, you should just let it go and say, okay, great. Now I've shown it's not impossible. All this stuff about essences and Aristotle and so on isn't necessarily true or even likely. Right? Um, what is true is what the Bible says. Right? And uh, uh, I think it's – people have been accused of heresy for having the wrong view about Aristotelian categories. Um, I don't think anybody has ever been accused of heresy for believing biblical passages. Uh, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Nobody should ever be accused of heresy for simply believing biblical passages. Okay, so that's, that's the warning on that. Okay, so without any further ado, let's launch into these, uh, these topics. Existence, essence, substance, and person. Um, we're going to start by distinguishing existence and essence, okay? Uh, the essence of a thing is the way it would have to be if it existed, okay? Should a thing exist, it has to be a certain way. Uh, the existence of the thing is the, is the thing that way, with that essence, uh, the thing in reality. Uh, the, another way of thinking of essence is that it's something you can't take away from a thing without destroying it. Okay, uh, I have an example here on the sheet that circularity is part of the essence of a wheel. You take circularity away from a wheel, and you don't have a wheel anymore. It's gone. You might have a hump of or a hunk of junk, right? You might have some twisted piece of metal, but you take away circularity, and it's no longer a wheel. The wheel has been destroyed. Okay, essence and nature are interchangeable terms. Uh, they actually are ambiguous terms. There are several different ways those terms can be used. But you can use both essence and nature in those ambiguous ways. So they're really uh, interchangeable terms. Uh, to be something of a certain kind, X, is to be the ultimate possessor of the nature of X. Okay? The ultimate possessor of the nature of X's, I should say. So to be a human is to be the ultimate possessor of human nature. Right? I'll get into what ultimate means later. For right now, just, you know, I'm using it. It doesn't mean, like, really cool or anything. It just means it has a, a technical meaning that we'll get to later. Okay. Though maybe it is kind of cool. I don't know. Okay. Uh, one of the terms that comes up a lot that I think is kind of confusing, I, I always read it and my eyes start glazing over, is communication or communicability of things. Uh, I usually don't, you know, it, it takes me a while to remember what the heck that even means. Okay. Uh, things that have a given essence can share the same essence with distinct items. So, for example, all of us share the essence, human nature, share a human nature. We share a single human nature, right? We share a single human nature. All wheels share the essential property of circularity, right? Um, another way to put that is that circularity is communicated to all wheels, or human nature is communicated to all people, to every human person. Um, now, there is a distinction between essences for creatures and essences for the creator. It's very, this is a very important distinction uh, that you have to understand, to understand uh, Chemnitz's ideas and to understand basically this whole system of thought. In the created order, 
essences can be thought of as abstract. That means they, they don't have, necessarily have uh, uh, some concrete existence. Uh, all wheels share, share one single property called circularity. Okay? One single property. So the, the four wheels of your car have not four circularities, but one circularity in common. Right? They also have the individual circularity of the wheel. We'll get to that in a minute. But they have one common property called circularity, okay? That is an abstract thing. Okay, meaning it's it doesn't exist in the concrete. Um it doesn't depend on the existence of any particular concrete object. The abstract property does not depend on the existence of any concrete object. When you destroy the circularity of a wheel, you destroy the wheel, but you don't destroy circularity. Right? When you, you know, smash a wheel so it's no longer circular, it's, it, circularity is not harmed by that, but the wheel is. Um, okay. Uh, another way to put this is that uh, the existence of abstract natures is eternal and necessary. Okay. Uh, okay, now, here's the, here's the biggie. For created beings, abstract essence precedes existence. Okay? You have, the abstract essences exist apart from the individual things that have them and before the individual things that have them. Okay? There's such a thing as the essence of a unicorn. Okay? There's such a thing as the essence of a unicorn. Um, Here's, a, here's an example of an essential property. Should a unicorn exist, it must have a single horn. Right? Something with two horns can't be a unicorn. Right? So should a unicorn exist, it has to have a single horn. Um, it doesn't follow from this that there are any unicorns. Right? I don't think there are. <laughs> but I haven't checked everywhere. So, um, Another way to put this I think that's equivalent and probably a little better in that it doesn't depend on talking about abstract and so on, is to say a thing has to first be possible before it can be actual. Right? To say that there's an essence of a unicorn is to say, yes, that's a possible, describable being. Right? To say that there is a unicorn is to say there actually is one. Right? There is, actually is such a thing. It's not just I can describe it without contradicting myself. There really is one. Okay. Obviously, nothing can exist that's impossible, right? A square circle, there's no essence of that because it's not possible. Okay. Um, essences can also be thought, thought of as concrete. And I, I touched on this earlier. In a particular wheel, right, there's the circular shape of that wheel, right? And it's destroyed along with the wheel if you destroy the circularity of the wheel. I mean, or if you take circularity away from the wheel. Um, so there's this, there's a way of thinking of essences in created things that's abstract in a way that's concrete. Okay. Either way, though, the abstract property of circularity is unaffected and, in fact, unaffect, unaffectable. Okay. Uh, the particular shape of each individual wheel is not shared, right? Each wheel has its own shape. Um, uh, only the universal abstract Nature is shared. Okay, now let's turn to the divine essence. This is the important distinction. For divine essence, it is not the case that existence precedes essence. Okay, it is not the case that existence precedes essence. For the divine essence, existence is essence. Essence is existence. Okay, this is the important distinction. Um... Here's a, here's a little argument to, to maybe uh, uh, motivate why this, this uh, has to be the case. Uh, the act of creation is making the possible become actual. Okay, so you have an abstract essence, you make it actual, you've now created that thing. Okay? Um, if the creator's essence preceded his existence, then nothing could ever make that essence become actual. This is really a, a sort of a, a, a first cause type argument. Um, 
if there were no, if the, if the creator did, if his essence were distinct from his existence, it would be impossible for anything to ever come into existence. Because the creator could never come into existence and thus no creation could come into existence. Um, and because of this, God's essence cannot be thought of as truly abstract. Right? His essence is complete. His essence is... Uh, one way Thomas actually put this, St. Thomas, who's one, probably the greatest scholastic philosopher, is he said, really, you, you, to even think of God as having a substance the way we do is just wrong. Okay? Um, because God's existence is his essence. Uh, there are some interesting uh, uh, consequences of this, too. Because the ex God's existence is his essence, there can only be one God. Monotheism is implied by this. Why? Because, let's suppose you had two beings that are God. Well, then they, they must both partake in the divine nature. But the divine nature is identical to its existence. So they partake in the divine existence. Right? So they're both the same existence not different ones. So they are the same thing. Right? So monotheism is a consequence of um, the idea that God's existence is identical to his essence. So that's a difference between God's essence and our essences. Right? Uh, there is a way that it's similar, right? uh, and that is that it can be communicated to the divine persons. Okay? In other words, the divine persons all share in that one essence. Okay, and because of that, they are the same existence, right? The same entity. Um, the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost each have the full divine essence, which is to say that the full essence of God is communicated to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. The Father, uh, the Son, and the Holy Ghost have a single existence because there is only one divine nature, and it is identical to the divine existence. Uh, there is no such thing as God apart from the divine persons. Right? You, you, right? The divine exi essence exists in the three divine persons. And there's not, it's not like there's something, some fourth thing that's not one of the persons but also has the design, divine essence. Okay. So that's essence versus existence. I, I'm going to pause and ask if there are any questions about that. Yes, sir. <laughs> Actually, I should say, I, I sort of have a different different uh, uh, way of thinking about things than Rod does. I, I don't usually like to pause and ask for questions. I'd really prefer if people just ask questions when they're confused. I, I think I had a question back here from Jeff. Oh, okay. Uh, Dale, you said something about uh, St. Thomas. Yes. And are we talking about the Apostle? No, 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 Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas, okay. Thomas Aquinas, yeah. I thought maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was one of the high scholastic, well, he was the high scholastic philosopher. So, Dale, um, maybe thinking ahead a bit, um, how would you respond to the idea that uh, a wheel could have both the essence of a circle and a square? Uh, I'd say that's a contradiction. So then you would have the essence of human nature and the essence of God dwelling in the square or in the wheel. Uh, no, I don't think so, because I don't think that, you, that we have uh, enough to say that the divine nature is logically incompatible with the human nature, right? That's, that's something we'll have to get to, but I don't think so. Um, you see, see the, the, prob the though, problem right? with square and circle is that their descriptions imply a contradiction, right? I don't think that's the case with human nature and divine nature. That a person could have both isn't immediately contradictory, you know, maybe if you want to, you know, if we could have a long discussion and you could try and prove it, but I, I don't think, I, I don't think it really, that it just sort of pops out the way square and circle do. First of all, if you could go just a little bit slower. Yeah. And then <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then, you know what, I, I'm keeping up, okay. Well, then why do I need to go slow? No, because it helped me absorb it <laughs> oh, better. Okay. okay. <laughs> you know, like a sponge, it takes a little time to react. Okay. <laughs> okay. But my question is, unless if this is completely irrelevant, of course, disregard it. But I'm thinking, 
how are these concepts different from Plato's idea? Um, I think they're more worked out than Plato's ideas. Uh, certainly, Plato's idea of, of forms, is, right, one way of understanding that is, is abstract universal properties. Uh, Plato doesn't always speak that way. Sometimes, though, he speaks of the forms as if they are ideal examples of a given object, particular things, in other words, not, not universal abstract properties. I'm not sure that will work either. Uh, I mean, how do you have a form of triangle? Because if you have a form of triangle, it's going to have to be either right or obtuse or scalene. It's got to be one of those three, and it can't be, it can't be all. So how does the form of a triangle work? I, I, I don't know. I don't think Plato's theory quite is as well worked out as, as Aristotle's theory was, and then as the scholastics later then uh, dealt with Aristotle. Uh, Plato is, like I said, ambiguous between abstract universal properties and ideal examples. Did that help? Or did, it, did that add to the confusion? Probably the latter. All right, we are going to pause right there so that we can pay some bills, and we'll continue with the Dale Brandt's lecture on uh, this Aristotelian philosophy. I apologize if your brain is hurting. I you know, I get it. If you, if it's hurting badly, you know, stop the tape, go back and re-listen. So it's you, the idea here is you want to get the categories, you want to get some of the terminology and how it's being used in this book so that you can operate correctly in it. So, you know, think of it as you're learning a little bit of a new language here, and it's a philosophical language that helps us uh, understand some something theologically. So, <sighs> lots, lots of fun. All right, uh, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of uh, Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Christmas season is upon us. It's time for parties and gifts and all that kind of stuff. Do you have a Christmas party or potluck that you need to plan for? Or maybe you enjoy giving food gifts for Christmas. Either way, Pirate Christian Radio's featured holiday sponsor, the Wisconsin Cheese Man, has a huge variety of gourmet cheeses, sausages, cakes, and cookies. Oh, I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. Just for you. They have gifts such as their cheese and sausage combo pack or their cheese great gift basket or my personal favorite, the Big Nibbler. Whatever your holiday taste might be, the Wisconsin Cheese Man has exactly what you're looking for. So if you would like to purchase something from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese. Click on the banner provided there and you will be taken to the promised land of gourmet cheeses. <laughs> and just remember, a portion of everything you purchase from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, after you've clicked on that link, goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese today. Keep more of your money in your pocket. 
Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Morning. You don't want to mix essence and accidental attributes and uh, communication and yeah, this Aristotelian stuff. It'll bend your mind a little bit. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions. In order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you, you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. That's right. We depend upon your generous gifts to keep going. And so uh, uh, we need you to visit our website, and especially as you're considering uh, you know, your, your holiday uh, year-end giving, can, uh, please uh, consider Fighting for the Faith in, uh, in your giving. Uh, fightingforthefaith.com, pick one of the friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically, on a monthly basis, contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, let's continue with uh, Dale Brandt's lecture on uh, the definitions from Chapter 1 of Martin Chemnitz's book, The Two Natures in Christ. Uh, again, I apologize for the convoluted difficulty of it, but I think uh, Dale is doing a fine job of defining things so that you can at least understand the categories that he's operating in so that uh, as you continue to read the book, you get the definitions and what it is that he's uh, pointing to. Here we go. Okay. Oh, yeah, Bob has a question. You know, I believe Aristotle died uh, with the concept that there was a one God and one creator. Uh, you know, uh, well, so, certainly yeah. he was the first one I know of that gave the cosmological argument for the existence of God, right? That right. there's a prime mover of the universe. I'm not sure how much he invested in it. I wouldn't, certainly wouldn't go so far as to say that he uh, derived Christianity from reason alone. No, but did, wasn't but, he the one that drank the cup? Because no, no, that was Socrates. Socrates, excuse Socrates, me. Socrates, yes. Okay. He was also accused of, of teaching strange gods, uh, though chances are he, it was just trumped up so they could kill him. Thanks for, thanks for clearing that up. <laughs> Good, okay. Everybody understands. I always take lack of comment as evidence of understanding. Okay, substance. Substance. Uh, sometimes that's used as a, as a synonym for essence. Substance and essence are sometimes used as synonyms for each other. I believe on, uh, uh, in Chemnitz's work, he actually says he, these are uh, synonyms. Um, but there, I think there are some subtle differences that make it worthwhile spelling out this, this distinction. Okay, substance is that which exists in and by itself. It possesses accidental properties or modes, and it survives accidental changes. Now, what do I mean by accidental changes and properties and modes? Okay, we talked about how essences, that which you, if you take it away from a thing, it destroys it. Uh, an accidental property is a property that if you take it away, it doesn't destroy the thing. The thing survives through accidental change. So if I've got my tire, circularity is essential to it, but being all shiny and such is accidental, and it loses it if I haven't armored it in a while, right? I have to, you know. So shininess is is an accidental property of my tires, which, by the way, they don't have. If it's flat, it loses its circularity. 
Well, yeah, kind of, kind of, sort of. Um, certainly, yeah, it's deformed out of a perfect circular shape, but in truth, it never really was exactly circular. You know, so it's, I'm, I'm sort of fudging anyways, right? About that, saying circularity is the essence of my tire. It actually isn't quite. But it's close enough for our purposes. Okay. Um, okay. That's true. That's true. But the wheel isn't really circular either, you know. Yeah. Not really. <laughs> That's true. Okay. Um, complete and incomplete substances. Substances can be both complete and incomplete. An incomplete substance is a substance separated from its naturally. That term, remember that term naturally. It's not just something I threw in there. That means essentially. Complementary substances. Okay, the human soul is a substance, but apart from the human body, it is incomplete. Okay, likewise, the human body is a substance, but part, apart from the soul, it's incomplete. Right? Um, a complete substance, uh, when we're dealing with, with something like the soul and the body, would be when those two exist together under a single nature, namely the human person. Uh, so the union of complementary substances comprising a single nature is an example of a complete substance. You could also have a simple substance comprising a single nature. Okay, a simple substance comprising a single nature. The uh, medievals uh, thought, and I'm not sure if Chemnitz followed them in this, that God was a simple uh, nature right, or a simple substance. Uh, all the properties of God are identical to one another. God is identical to every single one of his properties. Strange idea, right? God is his power. God is his knowledge. God is his wisdom and so on. They would say things like that. Um, I'm not sure what kind of biblical support they had for it. I think it was mostly Aristotle that gave them this idea. Uh, okay. Now, communicable substance. Sounds like a communicable disease. Um, <laughs> Uh, it, uh, substance is, is communicable if it is not the ultimate, there's that word ultimate again, possessor of its nature. Okay? Not the ultimate possessor of its nature, the final possessor of its nature. Um, so, uh, for example, the incomplete substances in a uh, union of complementary substances comprising a single nature are all communicable. The human soul is a communicable substance. Right? It, it's communicated to the human person. Uh, making a complete substance. Um, the ultimate possessor of the of the nature would be the union, right? Whatever it is that you're putting together uh, with incomplete substances, the ultimate possessor would be the union. Okay, individual substance is undivided. Uh, in itself, in fact, that word "individual," you might see that that looks like "individed." Right, but this undivided. Maybe we should call them individuals. I don't know. Um, and uh, it's separated from all other beings. Okay? So it's undivided in itself, separated from all other beings. Now, why are all these things important? Well, because Chemnitz's definition of a person is this. It is an intelligent, uh, individual, incommunicable substance. An intelligent, uh, 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 I don't know if he adds the word complete, but it is also complete, uh, uh, individual, incommunicable substance. Now, when I saw that on the sheet Rod handed out, I said, what the heck is this unintelligent, there's that word again, incommunicable, uh, individual substance. I didn't know what it meant. And so that's why I spent some time here trying to spell out these ideas. Um, Questions? A person, a person is, remember, uh, right, it isn't, not all persons are necessarily strictly human, because there's the, right, Christ is the, is the exception, right? Okay, so it's a, an intelligent, complete, individual, incommunicable substance.
Yes. I don't understand why. Oh, wait, 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 wait. You need, you need the microphone. I don't understand why it's incommunicable. Why a person is incommunicable? Um, I'm not sure I understand why either, <laughs> to tell you the truth. Uh, that's just the claim that a person, that this is the ultimate, the person is the ultimate possessor of the properties. If, like, so if you say John is intelligent, you're not saying, you aren't strictly saying that of John's soul. You're saying it of that person, right? Every, every property that, is, that, is, that the thing has is ultimately possessed by the person, not by some one part of it. Does that, I don't know. Yes, sir. Uh, Without entirely hijacking the the uh, discussion, uh, I think one of the ways that that we might think about the uh, communicable non communicable thing is in terms of what we confess about the resurrection of the body, and that is that you know, as a human being, you are a a body and a soul, and the separation of the body and the soul is absolutely unnatural. It's it's not the way God designed you to be. It's not the way that that we find human beings. If you have a body and a soul, you are a human being. Death then rips those two apart, and God says, no, you are supposed to be a body and a soul. And so uh, he puts those back together in the resurrection to put you to be the way that he designed you to be in the first place. Uh, Death is completely unnatural, which I think also goes to the you know, accidental properties of sin, which I'm sure you're going to get to here. Uh, uh, maybe. I don't know. Well, it's, it's, a, part, it's a part of it, but uh, I, don't, I don't know if that muddies the water or if it helps. Actually, any. I think that helps. Okay. I think that helps uh, because what it shows is that, is that this idea of a person as being the final possessor of its properties really is founded in, in our theology rather than in some a priori philosoph- philosophical system. I mean, it's not like... Look, I mean, this word person is just, I mean, what is it? It's just purr and sun put together. It's, it's nothing. It's just a, a, a grunt that I make that means something, that we, we have this firm determination that it will mean such and so. Um, why we have that firm determination that it will mean such and so is ultimately grounded in the idea that this is the way God created things, right? This is the nature of things. Okay. Um, so maybe in some ways my initial answer was correct. I don't know, because I, if I had to ask, answer the question, why did God do it that way? I don't know. He did. For his, he, he liked it that way. Good. Did you, you, Judy, you had a follow-up, didn't you? Wait, wait, wait. But you have to wait for the microphone. This is a very natural way of speaking. We do that at my house, too. Everybody has a microphone in order to speak. I, got, I only wish that that were true. Man, that would help with Lydia a lot. Okay. Uh, let's see. Okay. Human nature is communicated to every person, human person. So you said humanity or a person is uncommunicative. We're, we're communicating with, I mean, we're communicative with other humanity, other humans, other people. <laughs> human nature is communicated to every human person, but n- no human person is communicated to another. See? You're not communicated to Jack. Sometimes you, I don't know if you... Sometimes. Sometimes you're not, not even communicating with Jack. I don't know. But <laughs> I get lucky sometimes. Sometimes, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's the idea. It's not like uh, to describe... One person, we could ever say, oh, well, right, this other person is communicated to them. It's, you're a, an individual nature, and Jack is an individual nature, and so on. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. I, I think the confusion is we, we think about communication as in I'm speaking words to you, and you're receiving those words, and that's not really the way that, that communication yeah, works here. It's... it's uh, Think of it as transferable attributes, if, if, and it's not really getting it, but that's, that's close. Yeah. Trans- that is that uh, you are not me, I am not you, 
I will not become you, you will not become me, even though we share some of the same properties. We're both mammals. We both breathe air. We both eat food. Um, our bodies work the same way. We have largely the same organs, unless some of you are missing an appendix, etc. cetera. Uh, but we, we, don't, we don't become each other. Not quite it, but hope that helps. It's not about us talking to one another, which we can obviously do, as long as we have the mic. <laughs> We have another one? Dale, you're going to have to deal with cloning now. Why? Why? Communication of the uh, essence. You're assuming DNA is the essence. But, uh, uh, right, D- uh, in fact, I think, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so is DNA the essence of a, of a human being? No, why not? The soul, right. The soul, right? DNA is the essence of the body at best, right? At best. Um, So uh, the soul is a distinct thing. And I I should note, too, that, that remember, we all share a human nature, right? We all share a human nature. Um, So... Right, that's an abstract property. Humanity is an abstract property we all have. Right? And right, maybe you could understand part of that at least in terms of the human genome or something like that. Uh, wait, 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 wait. You're not communicating in a natural way. And I mean that in all the technical terms. It, it just popped into my head that one way to explain the soul to those who are DNA-oriented is that the soul, that's the sole existence of a person, is that there are identical twins, and they live separate lives and have separate thoughts. And that's a clue, I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, identical twins. Well, I mean, a clone really is like your identical twin, isn't it? Just born years and years after you were. Um, not quite. I guess there's stuff about, I, I don't you know, there might be some issues there, but, but in any event, you're exactly right. Twins have different thoughts, different ideas, um, unless all that stuff about them feeling the same thing is true. I don't Do you know anything about Star Trek? Do you mean uh, 305 uh, being a uh, uh, Star Trek? individual I, thought? I know something about Star Trek. I watched Galaxy Quest last night, but I... <laughs> I don't know any, I, I'm, yeah, I'm not familiar. Okay, that's all my philosophy goes by. I imagine there is some philosophy in, in, uh, in science fiction, yeah. Okay, oh, one more, one more. How does the Eastern world deal no, with this? I have no clue, I have no clue, yeah. I, I, I have not studied that to the extent that would be necessary to answer in an intelligent manner. Okay. All right. Let us talk then about persons. This is sort of the final um, uh, item that we wanted to cover today. Uh, the persons of the Godhead as hypostases. Okay. A hypostasis is the inner reality of a thing apart from its appearances. This goes way back. This is the uh, uh, Hellenic understanding, the Greek understanding of the idea. The inner reality of a thing apart from its appearances. It is the ultimate foundation, uh, uh, and it is the ultimate possessor of essential properties. It's the final thing. I mean, you can say that the human soul has certain properties, but in the end, ultimately, finally, it's the person that has the properties. Um, that is naturally said to have the, be the possessor of the properties. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, it is an individual, complete, and incommunicable substance. Right. Once you've got you've gotten to the level of hypostasis, you can't communicate it to something else. Okay. A person is an intelligent hypostasis, okay? And that's usually, usually when we talk about hypostasis in, in talking about the Godhead, we're interested in that, 
persons. I mean, we kind of just ignore the idea that there might be a hypostasis of a wheel or something like that. We really don't care. Um, it's the person, the intelligent, individual, complete, incommunicable substance uh, that we're interested in. Um, the human soul is not the ultimate possessor of human nature. The human person is the ultimate possessor of human nature. Uh, the son, right, the second person of the Trinity, is the ultimate possessor of the divine nature. This means he has the same single essence as the Father and the Holy Ghost, or the same single, I'm sorry, well, I guess in, the case, in this case, what I said wasn't really a mistake, but what I have written down here is existence. Because for God, existence is essence. So he has the same single existence as the Father and the Holy Ghost. Um, parallel claims serve to show that, uh, or to say at least, that the Father has the same single existence as the Son and the Holy Ghost, and the Holy Ghost has the same single existence as the Father and the Son. Um, the Son is also the ultimate possessor of a human nature. You know, what do we mean by that? Okay, two things. He shares the same universal abstract properties that Judas has, that make Judas human. Right? We say Judas is a human. Why? Because he has the essence of humanity. Right? He has human nature. Uh, Jesus is human for exactly the same reason, because he has that universal abstract quality or, or property. Uh, he also, though, possesses characteristic properties that serve to distinguish him from all other human persons. So Jesus has certain, had a certain color of eyes, had a certain shape of nose, had fingerprints, um, and so on, had a certain DNA, right, in a certain exact DNA coding. Uh, it, that, these things serve to distinguish him from all other human persons. He has thus a concrete human nature. In addition to the abstract human nature that he shares with everybody, he has his own concrete human nature. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost do not possess either the concrete or the abstract nature. Or, I'm sorry, did I say the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost? Yeah. That would be an example of contradiction. Um, <laughs> the Father and the Holy Ghost do not possess a human nature, either abstractly or concretely. Um, that's sort of, I'm done. Are there any questions? Yeah. Can we start over? Christ, in his personhood, does he have a soul? Do you have a soul? Yes. Okay, then he does. Yeah, yeah, because that's part of human nature, isn't it? Yeah. So, Dale, if I was cloned, whose essence would my clone have? His own. And Well, he'd have a human nature, right? He'd have a human nature, right? the same one I've got. Right. right, you don't have to get into cloning. He'd have the same one I have, mm -hmm. uh, the same abstract quality or property that makes him human is shared among all humans. So then, in terms of creation and God's intent, would the clone be natural or unnatural? Well, uh, that's a hard question. I'm not sure that I need to answer that in order to understand the hypostatic union. But, but uh, you know, that's a moral question, really. More is—is is this what God wants us to do? I mean, we can certainly do it, or maybe we can clone human beings. Is that what God wants us to do? You know, that's a that's a hard question. I'd say probably not, but at the same time, though, as we're talking human being, we're talking body and soul, inseparable. Uh, you know, this is as the, in the language that we've been using here, the human being is the ultimate possessor of of those things. Uh, and, and without even getting into cloning, uh, I, th I think something just as, as maybe hard to wrap your brain around, single cell, as soon as sperm joins egg, there, there is a body, it's one cell large, and it is a human being, there is a soul. And so, you know, we, we could argue the, the morality, immorality of, of human cloning, but if there is a human being there, then it is a body and a soul. Um. That's, that, I, I couldn't have put it better myself, and so I'll let it stand. 
Uh, Dale, question. Yeah. With um, Thomas Aquinas and his view of the natures of Christ, he has in the Lord's Supper where uh, the bread and wine are an, an accident, and it's really That's correct. strictly transubstantiation, body and blood, where we confess bread, body, blood, wine are both there, and then the Reformed have a nature of Christ that's stuck at the right hand of the Father. Therefore, there's in the Reformed sacrament, there's nothing there, but uh, that's correct. Wine. So, how, what I what I'm trying to understand is what is Rome's view and our view and the Reformed view. It's now there's three different views here of the two natures of Christ and a hypostatic union. Are we the only ones that have hypostatic union? Or Oh, no. No, 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 no. No, I, I don't do think that. so. We'll do that up ahead, Dale. Okay. And so I can defer it I... to someone who, who knows it four times better, probably no, no, no. 14 <laughs> times but better than me. Keep, keep in mind what Chemnitz has told us in all these early chapters. There's a reason for all of this. And the reason is he wants to defend that there is one Christ, not a being who has two natures, each in a watertight compartment, but that the divine nature shows itself through Jesus' body, through his materiality. That's what he's going to use all this machinery to do, to make sure we haven't got Sybil or a multi-personality or that sort of thing. Who's in his crosshairs? Probably the Reformed. Yeah, there's a, there's a single person, Christ, right. that has both natures, right? right? Fully, yep. both natures fully. Yep. Uh, and they're not in watertight compartments. Right, right, that's correct. The, the, the divine attributes are communicated to the human, the human person, yep. Christ. Right, that's an important, that's an important that's distinction. Without being mixed. Without being mixed. Right, that, that's an important point. The, 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 the reformers want to say that, they're, that it, that doesn't happen, that the divine attributes are not communicated to the, to the Calvin. Human. Is that right? Yeah, Luther yeah. will say they're communicable. Yeah. Chemnitz is doing Luther here. Well, the divine but nature Calvin is communicable. Say, absolutely though. not. That's why Sproul looks at me and says, the Monophysite party's here. Yes, that's right, that's right. The, the, but notice that we're not assuming anything more than you already assume in order to assume the Trinity. Namely, that the divine nature is communicable. Right? So that's, that's uh, I, I think that we have, in some ways, the high ground there. I'm not sure if our position is much different from Rome's on this. Well, they what do you think, Rob? they a fight with us about the supper. They, yes, they've had a fight with us about the supper. But I, I, it wasn't the, that wasn't the place where it really hit. They thought maybe we were okay. Today is Pope Benedict gets all the guys behind the closed doors. He says, get off the Lutheran's case. They're pretty close. He did that today? Like this, this, this very day? How do you know? The essence of uh, humans, wouldn't you say, is sinful? Say that again? Wouldn't, wouldn't the essence of human be sinful? Yes, we, we, uh, I think Alice brought this up earlier. Did, uh, is she here? She's not here. Yeah, that's right. The, uh, not earlier uh, today, but in, in an earlier class session. Is the essence of humanity sinful? And the answer is, well, the, our essence, is, our nature is sinful, um, I don't know, you know, I don't think we can say Christ's nature is sinful. I'm not sure how to work that out. I've got, I can speculate, but I don't, you know. It was thought out in the formula. And the way, the language you get is everyone conceived in the normal way is pray to Adam's sin. Everyone conceived in the normal, they had to get out of saying that to be human was to be a sinner. You lose Christ. Right. So, but does that not make uh, sinfulness an accidental quality? You're the authority on that. Yeah. <laughs> See, and that that seems to me that the issue is how, how does that work? That it, how does it how does that not make? I, mean, I think it's a, a legitimate question that's tough to answer. Uh, you know, I'm not going to say I have an answer to it, um, but it seems like that would make sinfulness an accidental. Part. I just happen to be born this way. 
right? That's an accident. I could have been born a different way. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to go too far into that because I think it gets into to issues that I'm not all that qualified to answer about. Um, what, is, what do we mean when we say, by nature, I am sinful and unclean? Does it mean that my nature includes sin? Or does it mean because of my nature, I will sin? Maybe there's a distinction there to be drawn. I don't know. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what it means. <laughs> the question is, does, do clones sin? And clearly not. <laughs> Just kidding, by the way. <laughs> Are we good? Everybody understands everything. So, Rod, no problems in the future on any of this philosophy. Your entire class understands it fully. Appreciate it. All right. Wouldn't have thought that could have been done in 40 minutes. All right. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, and we depend upon your generous financial gifts and contributions to keep doing what we're doing. Visit our website, pick one of the yellow buttons there, and uh, support uh, this important radio outreach. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. <laughs>